Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Caleb and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Caleb. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Calah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Calah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Calah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Calah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David at Calah, he had come down with an afat in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Caleb. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war, to go down to Caleb, to besiege David and his men. David knew Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar, the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Calah to destroy the cities, the city on my account. Will the men of Calah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Calah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about six hundred arose and departed from Calah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Calah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we, we come to the Bible with our own assumptions, with our own prejudice, thinking we understand what you have said when maybe we're only understanding what we want to understand or what fits our preconceived notions about you or how you operate in the world. And so, Father, we pray that you would guard me 
against saying anything that is false or that is untrue, that you would protect me as a teacher who will be judged more severely on the day of judgment. And Lord, we pray that you would guard the the hearts and the minds of those who hear, that they can discern truth and falsehood. And Lord, without your Holy Spirit shining light onto the text of Scripture, that we would never be able to understand truly on a deep heart level of faith. And so we pray for your Spirit to cut through our unbelief and our hardness of heart with the the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We face many problems in life. Maybe you're even facing problems this morning. And we can have different responses to the problems of life. Sometimes it's the the flight response where we try to get out as quick as we can, escape the situation. Maybe it's the, the fight response where we dig in and go to war and conflict. But as we look at this text that you just heard me read, we see David facing problems. And specifically, he is facing three problems in this passage. And he has the same response to each of the problems that he faces. So what we're going to do today is walk through his three problems, the response to those problems, and then we'll look at the application of that at the end of our time today. So let's start then with the the first problem that David faced here in the text. And we see it in verse 1. Look there in your Bible. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Calah and are robbing the threshing floors. And so apparently, David had a a spy network. He, He was able to know what was going on in the surrounding country. And he hears the report that this town of Judah, in southern Judah, is facing attacks from the Philistines, nothing new there, and they are coming and raiding the threshing floors of Cala. Now, as we'll see, Cala, this town, was a walled city, and it was very hard to attack a walled city at any point, but especially in the ancient world. But the the Philistine raiders were coming up from really what is the modern-day Gaza Strip into Israel. And instead of trying to attack the walled city, they targeted the threshing floors. Now, the, the threshing floors were the places outside the city walls where they would collect the wheat from the harvest. And they, it would always be on top of a hill because as the wheat dried, they could go and use animals to tread on the grain that would knock the, the grain off of the stock. And then they could use essentially a pitchfork to throw it in the air and the chaff would blow away, leaving just the grain. But this was an exposed place of vulnerability. And of course, it's an economic vulnerability at first, 
because they're stealing grain. But for an ancient society that is supported with subsistence farming, it becomes an existential threat very quickly because then you don't have grain to feed your family, to survive. And, and so it was just as lethal as a direct military assault on the walls of the city. And apparently the citizens of this town, Kayla, were helpless as they faced these Philistine raiders. And so as David hears this, he's deeply moved that at heart he is a protector of the innocent, that his calling of future kingship in Israel as the the Lord's anointed is beginning to come out, that he doesn't want to leave this poor town to the ravages of the Philistines when he has essentially now an army that he's gathered to himself in the wilderness. As we see at the end of our text, it was 600 people, and we see how that's growing from the previous chapter. And so he desperately wants to go and to defend this poor town. But then how does he respond to this problem, this, this dilemma? Well, look with me in your Bible at, at verse 2. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack the Philistines? And so the response of David is essentially prayer. As we'll see, he's also using the, the means that God had provided for that time, the, the priestly intercession to inquire of the Lord, to say, Lord, what do you want me to do in this situation? And he gets a very clear response from the Lord where God says, go, attack the Philistines, and save Kayla. So he faces the problem. He responds by inquiring of the Lord. But then the result is actually another problem, which sometimes happens to us as well, where we think we hear an answer from God and it feels like it's just causing another, another problem in our life. So look at verse 3. This is the, the second problem that David faced. That David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Kela against the armies of the Philistines? And remember we said last week that his army was the, the island of misfit toys, that it was the, the ragtag collection of people, that yes, over time, this group would morph into David's mighty men of war, but at this point, they were not David's mighty men, that they were people who were not necessarily trained in warfare. They weren't an elite fighting force. And so the, the second problem that David is facing is the, the fear of his own men, that he comes to the men and says, all right, I've, I've inquired of the Lord, and he's told us what to do. Let's go and attack the Philistines and save this city of Kela." And I like how direct they are. We are afraid here in Judah. They're saying, we're facing the armies of King Saul. We already have a problem. This is not our problem. We can't go and then take on all of these Philistine forces while Saul is also 
preparing to attack us. This is more than we can bear. And so this was then a, a moment for David. It was a, a test of his leadership. And often leaders can rely on two different tactics. One tactic is a very dominant leadership style where you say, no, this is what we're going to do. Get in line or face the consequences. And David could have reacted in that way of, well, we can prepare an execution stone for deserters that we don't have to deal with this kind of cowardice, or he could have chided them as being cowards to try to motivate them. So that's one strategy for leaders, which is basically dominance. Or another strategy for leaders can be influence, where you try to use argumentation. You try to persuade people to do the right thing. That David could have laid out arguments. Here is why it's important to deliver this city. Here's why we have enough resources. So as David faces this problem of his men's fear and unwillingness to follow, look at how he responds to this problem in verse 4. Then David inquired of the Lord again. And so he goes back to the Lord a second time. And I don't think he's doing this necessarily for himself. This is not his own doubt of what he heard from the Lord. But he's providing a a wonderful picture of, of spiritual leadership, where it's not just giving orders and dominant leadership. It's not just persuasion and influential leadership, but it's spiritual leadership where then he's saying, let's go back to the Lord and your boldness will come not from my own orders or persuasion, but ultimately from the Lord. And so it says, verse 4, then the Lord David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, arise, go to Calah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And I think it's really beautiful here how when he goes back to the Lord the second time, he, he doesn't get a contradictory message, but yet he actually gets a more encouraging message where the first time the Lord said, go up against the Philistines and save Caleb. But then here God attaches a promise saying, I will deliver them into your hands. And so they could go then with confidence, knowing that the, the Lord wasn't only you know, sending them out into the line of fire, but he was going with them, and that the result was guaranteed by his promise. And of course, that can be true for us as well, that, that when we're facing doubt and fear, we may know what God wants us to do, but then the more we go to him seeking his face, the more we hear the, the promises of God, the assurance of God from his word to drive us to obedience and to action. And then you'll see the, the result then in verse 5. David and his men went to Cala, fought with the Philistines, and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Cala. And so the problem number two is resolved. 
But then David faces a third problem here in our text. And again, it's flowing out of the resolution of the second problem. So look in your Bible at verse 7. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Calah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And so you can see that almost the blasphemous words of Saul invoking the name of God for the pursuit of evil. But then he, he sees an opportunity to finally capture David, that now he's in a walled city. Now he knows where David is. He can lay siege to the city and capture David along with his men. And it said, Saul summoned all the people of war to go down to Calah to besiege David and his men. And so this is a problem. And David hears report that Saul is coming, again, from his spy network. And then he, he faces a choice. Because usually we have choices that flow out of problems in our life, of how will we respond to the problem that we're facing. The first response is, should he stay in the walled city? Should he, he bunker down, prepare for the siege, and try to win a battle against King Saul? Or does he flee with his men back into the wilderness? And for David, it wasn't immediately clear what he should do. And so then we ask the question, how does he respond to this third problem? And we see it here in our text. Look at verse 6 in your Bible. It says, When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David, to Calah, he had come down with an afod in his hand. Now, scholars point out that verse 6, just in the flow of this section, is, is a central verse that, that, in a sense, the whole passage hinges on verse 6. And also, verse 6 seems to be a flashback to the end of chapter 22, where it talked about Abiathar coming down and finding shelter with David. And it seems that he may have arrived with David as they were taking the, well, not taking the city of Calah, delivering the city of Calah from the Philistines. And you'll notice this important note. It says that he came down with an afod in his hand. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you might say, why is that detail important? What is the ephod? And it was part of the, the priestly garment that essentially the, the priest would wear a sleeveless vest that was made of precious fabric, precious jewels, and it had the, the 12 tribes of Israel inscribed on the shoulders and there was a, a special pocket in the ephod that contained what is called the Urim and the Thummim. And we've seen this earlier in 1 Samuel. And this is a very mysterious aspect of the priest's role in the Old Testament. We don't know exactly what the Urim and the Thummim was or what it looked like or how it worked. But as one commentary points out, this is the only revelatory device sanctioned by the Torah. In other words, within the Old Testament system that God had established, 
it was considered a sin to go to mediums and to necromancers or to witches or to consult the, the stars or um, any kind of astrology to try to predict the future or determine a future path. And the only sanctioned way to try to discern the future was this Urim and Thummim that the priest would hold within this linen afad. And that's why it, it notes in verse 6 that, that he had come to, to David with this means of gaining insight from the Lord about future action. And of course, that shows part of the folly of Saul, that Saul had just slaughtered an entire town of priests and thereby losing access to the means of grace that God had given. And so then look at how how David used what was the sanctioned means of grace for pursuing the, the will of the Lord in that context. Look at verse 11, that he asks a question. He calls him, well, actually start in verse 10. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Calah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Calah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? And so essentially, David then is asking two very related questions. The first one is, will the men of Calah surrender me into their hands? In other words, even though we've delivered this town from the ravages of the Philistines, are they going to try to avoid a very painful siege by just handing me over to Saul? And then the second question is, is Saul coming at all? And then look at how the, the Lord responds. And the Lord answers the, the second question first. And the Lord said, he will come down. Of course, that's the logical question to answer first. So it makes sense that that's the first question that God would answer. And then in verse 12, he says, Then David said, Will the men of Calus render me and my men into the hand of Saul? That David repeats the first question again. And then the Lord answers that first question. They will surrender you. Now it's interesting, as a, as a side note, as we think about our understanding of God, that, that God knows all things, and that God not only knows what will happen in any given situation, but he also knows every possible outcome. Even though he has ordained what will happen, He's able here to tell David what would happen if he stayed in the city, that he's, he's sovereign over both what happens and what could happen. And so then you see the, the final result, result, that David flees out of the city with his men, and they again find safety in the wilderness. So those are the three problems that David faced. And you see that his response to each of the problems was exactly the same, that he inquired of the Lord, sought the Lord's guidance for each important decision along the way. And so now let's turn from those three problems and the response to application. How does this apply to us today? 
And I want to draw two applications out of this text. So the first application is don't be surprised when you face problems. That sometimes in life when when problems come, we begin to think, does God is God there? Does God care about me? Is God punishing me? Does God love me? But yet we see David in this text facing real problems. And it probably felt like the answer to one prayer just caused another problem in each of those steps. But yet there's this sense that God is working. And so for us not to be discouraged when we face problems and then the difficult decisions and questions that then flow out of those problems. So that's the first application. Don't be surprised when you face problems. But then the second application is make a commitment to respond like David when you face problems and the choices that flow out of those problems. And of course, his response is to inquire of the Lord. But I can imagine objections in your heart, even right now, that you're thinking, well, that was fine for David. He had the priest. He had the Afad. He had the Urim and Thummim. I love saying that word, by the way, Urim and Thummim. I always have to look at it to make sure I say it right. Uh, but so he had the, the means of being able to inquire of the Lord. And so from our perspective, we could almost be jealous of David, that we, we desire that kind of clarity where we could go to God, ask a specific question, and get a specific response, knowing that that was from the Lord and not just our own idea. And so is it even possible for us to respond like David here in our text? Can we respond to our problems by seeking the Lord, by inquiring of Him? And this is where it's important to remember that that God has not left us alone, that God in the, the time of David had a very special means of grace, that he had appointed means by which David could seek the will of the Lord. And that today, even though those means have changed, that God still has provision. He still makes provision for us to inquire of the Lord. And that for us, when we face those problems and are seeking to inquire of the Lord, that we have three means of grace that God has given us. We have prayer, we have the study of God's Word, and then we have godly counsel. And so we'll start with prayer, that we have prayer as a means of grace that God has given us. And we can go directly to God in prayer, that when we face the problems of life, we can offer prayers just like we see from David. O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Kayla to destroy me. And then he seeks the Lord's guidance. And that's an important principle for each and every one of us, that when we face decisions in life, to remember to not just start with our own mind, but to walk in the fear of the Lord, to to go to the Lord in prayer. 
And though we shouldn't expect a verbal response, that God does answer prayer. That when we seek guidance from him for important decisions, that we do receive that guidance. It's the promise that we have in the New Testament in James 1 verse 5, where James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. That when you face the difficult decisions of life and you acknowledge your lack of wisdom, you seek wisdom from the Lord, that you have the promise of God that he gives his wisdom to those who ask. And so that's the, the first means of grace, which is prayer. But then we have another appointed means of grace as believers in the new covenant. And that's the, the study of God's word. Because you say, well, why did God make that special provision of the priest and the ephod and the urim and thummim? And the reason is that they had very little scripture. I mean, David at that point had presumably Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, maybe Joshua and Judges, some think that Samuel may have had a hand in writing those books, so it's possible that he had access to those as well. But he didn't have the full witness of Scripture. And so God made provision for him through the priest and through that intercession that he could receive. But we are in a far more privileged position than David because we have the inspired Word of God. We have 66 books of the scriptures that are breathed out by God and are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that we can be equipped for every good work. And I was helped as I studied this by looking at a a book by Sinclair Ferguson about seeking the will of God. And he points out that, that as we search the scriptures, for the will of God, that we start with the commands of God. The Ten Commandments, that's a good place to start if you want to know what does God want me to do. And he points out how older generations seldom wrote books about discerning the will of God, but they wrote a lot of books about the commands of God. What has God revealed for my life to follow, that we, just, we get wisdom as we prayerfully study the commands of God? But in addition to studying the commands of God, we also study the the wisdom principles of the Bible. That the Bible is a really beautiful book because it not only has commands saying do this or don't do this, but then it gives wisdom and patterns of living for daily life. For for example, if you were to read the, the book of Proverbs, much of it came from David's son Solomon. It lays out principles of wisdom. For example, Proverbs 26, 4 and 5, this is a a famous example of wisdom. It says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. The next verse, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And people will look at that and say, wait, there's contradiction in the Bible that verse 4 contradicted verse 5. But it's not contradiction, it's wisdom that, that we, we learn patterns of living. And then as we combine that with prayer, 
as we seek the, the wisdom patterns of Scripture, we have great guidance for making decisions as we inquire of the Lord from His Word. So we can look at the commandments of God, the wisdom principles of the Bible, but then also we can study the examples of the Bible. To state the obvious, David didn't have 1 Samuel. He didn't have the the story of his own life written down. But we have the privilege of having not only commands and wisdom in the Scripture, but we have stories in the Bible where we can study good examples of people faithfully following the Lord, and we can learn from their patterns and follow them as we seek to make decisions in hard situations. We can also learn from the failures of the Bible. The Bible is primarily a story of human failure over and over again and of God's grace in the midst of human failure. But we can learn how can we live by looking at those successes and failures within the pages of the Bible. And this is part of how we inquire of the Lord in prayer with an open Bible seeking God. But then there's one other means of grace as believers, that another important means of grace as believers, (laughs) popping in the ceiling, uh, important means of grace for believers is godly counsel. So we have the, the, we have the wisdom, we have the commands, but then also God gives us fellow believers that we can consult because I've seen it many times as a pastor where somebody will say, well, I've, I've prayed about it and I've studied the Bible and I think that this is a good course of action. But then you look at it and you say, uh, I'm pretty sure that the Bible directly forbids the thing that you're thinking about doing and that it would be a really foolish decision, that we can deceive ourselves in our own subjective sense. And so especially as younger believers, but especially as, as really any believer, there's so much wisdom in in finding those around us who know the Lord and love the Lord and seeking their counsel, saying, am I really discerning God's voice? Am I reading the Bible truly? Am I, are there blind spots that I have in trying to understand Scripture? And it's not that then they are somehow prophets, that they're speaking the Word of God, but yet they can be an important means of grace, an instrument of God to help us discern the right path as we respond to the problems of life by inquiring of the Lord through prayer, through Scripture, through godly counsel of those around us. But then as we pull all of this together today, there's one more important means of grace and and it, it, we can almost, it'd be almost wrong to call it a means of grace. That, that when we talk of the means of grace, that we, we have ultimately the, the fountain of grace. That we have the, the fountain, the well of grace that we can draw wisdom from. Because remember, David, here in our text, goes to the high priest. This, this imperfect human who was the means of approach to God, and seeking God. But then listen to what we read in Hebrews chapter 4 in the New Testament. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, 
Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But ultimately, when we're seeking grace for the decisions of our life, for facing the problems of our life, that we learn the pattern here in our text that we go to the priest, the high priest of God. But for us, we believe in the the priesthood of all believers, that I am not your priest, I am your pastor, and that there is one high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the head of the church, the only mediator between God and man, the only comfort in life and death. And the author to the Hebrews says that, that we can go to him and that he is one who has been tempted as we are, that he sympathizes with our weakness, and yet he is without sin, and that because of his work for us, we can approach with confidence, and that we can find grace and mercy to help in times of need. And then here as we come to this meal, we, we come once again with Jesus as the high priest, that, that the high priest, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes to us and that's one reason that, that when I administer the Lord's Supper, that I'm not standing on this side of the table with my back to you, because I'm not the priest who is interceding to God on your behalf, but that you have direct access to Jesus, that, that, that there is no mere human mediator standing between you and God, but you come directly to Jesus, who is our shepherd who cares for us, who loves us, who, who draws us out of our sin, out of ourselves, giving us hope and peace. And so if, if you are a, a believer and you come to this meal, that this is another one of the, the means of grace that God has given to, to strengthen us as we seek his will and prayer and, and through scripture and through godly counsel, uh, to, to be reminded of the heart of what he has done for us, that his body was broken, because we couldn't save ourselves, that his, his blood was shed because that we're sinners, you can't live up to God's standard, but that because of that, that way opened into the holy place, that we can go to him directly, that we can inquire of the Lord with no priestly intercession because of Jesus, our high priest. Now, if, if you're here and you have not put your trust in Jesus, uh, we are very glad that you're here. But we would encourage you to stay seated as people come forward and to not go through the hypocritical action of taking this without believing what is symbolized here. But if you believe in Jesus, if you've repented of your sin and put your trust in him, made that public by being part of a church that proclaims the gospel, not bound by the action of another church from taking this, that you can come boldly to the throne of grace to, to find mercy and help in time of need. But then ultimately we come to this as, as those that can profess the faith that we hold together, and we, we do that using our profession of faith. So turn with me to page 10.
And let's profess our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Father, we thank you that though we will face problems and hard decisions where we don't see the right path forward, we pray that we can learn from David's good example, that we can inquire of the Lord, that we can seek your face. And Lord, we pray for us as Hope Church that we can faithfully inquire of you before each and every decision that we face, that we wouldn't barrel on with our own plans, but we would seek your wisdom, knowing your promise to provide wisdom when we ask for it. Lord, I pray that for each person here, that we can be a church that of individuals who in even the daily decisions of life are, are turning to you in prayer, seeking your guidance uh, for even the mundane decisions of, of life. And Lord, we pray for our, our hearts that we can be attentive to your word, that you have, you have spoken, that you are not silent, that you have spoken through commands in Scripture and wisdom in Scripture and the examples of Scripture. And Lord, you help remove our blind spots by fellow believers in the church who help hold us accountable and help point out our blind spots and our subjectivity of thinking we know what you're saying when it may not be what your word says. And Lord, in all of it, we pray that we can come to Jesus, that we would find Jesus as our high priest, that he would be the one who, who comes to us in, in his priestly robes of his righteousness, the perfect righteousness that he accomplished for us. And, and Lord, because of his death, that he, that he takes off our filthy robes and he puts his priestly garments on us, the robe of his righteousness, that we can become a kingdom of priests to our God with direct access to Jesus in prayer and through your word. Lord, we pray that we can go with confidence to the throne of grace to find mercy to help in times of need. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.